0: is your working life a podcast that provides you with tools inspiration and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life i'm caroline dowd higgins i'm a career and an executive coach and today i welcome jonah Sachs to the show jonah welcome
1: thanks for having me caroline it's great to be here
0: Oh, you're! I'm delighted, you are very welcome. I'm really excited to dive into a juicy conversation to tap your exp- experience, excuse me, you're really pioneering some great new approaches to digital media and how critical it is to bring the ideas of social change, equity, empowerment, responsibility, and advocacy to the forefront of business and popular culture. So let's dive right in. Why should people think or act in ways that are unsafe?
1: You know, we live in a world, I think we're all aware of this fact that it's changing all the time. And we're creatures of habit. You know, we get into a groove and we like to stay there. We find things that work and approaches that work and people we like to collaborate with. And that does all kinds of things in our brain that make us feel comfortable and safe. But in a world of constant change, that's actually quite dangerous because we get locked into a single operation mode that may have worked yesterday but certainly won't work tomorrow. And so even though we're programmed by evolution to resist taking risks and kind of jumping into the unknown, uh, a daily practice of doing that intelligently is really what's needed to face a a changing world and, and to have more fun doing it, frankly.
0: That's awesome. It's always good to incorporate more fun and and play into our work. And just to come full circle, to give extra clarity to what you just said so beautifully, the title of your book is Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. So you write that many of the characteristics that we usually associate with creative leaders are outdated or frankly just wrong. So give us some examples and, and help us understand what the better approach is today.
1: Yeah, we, we do walk around with these role models in our head that we're trying to live up to, and they do get outdated pretty quickly. Some of them are really 20th century models that we need yeah. to think, think again about. So for instance, survey after survey show that today, people would rather follow a humble and vulnerable leader than follow one who has all the answers and is self-aggrandizing. And that goes to this idea of expertise. The more that we think we know about things, the more blindness we have to, to a changing and outside world. So if you're playing a game like chess, where the rules never change and the board is two-dimensional, you want as much expertise as you possibly can get to think and react quickly. But when the rules are always changing and the game is undefined, expertise locks us in uh, and creates expert blindness. So the trick is that if we're kind of as leaders trying to show off as experts and have all the answers, uh, we often get ourselves into a position where we're no longer learning. So I really think that new leaders are, are think of themselves as explorers rather than experts is one big change. Uh, in, go ahead.
0: No, forgive me for interrupting. I, I couldn't agree more. I was just gonna interject. I know you also subscribe to the concept of failing forward and trying new things that are seemingly unsafe but could lead to new discoveries.
1: Yeah, and that's also a big part of leadership, you know, self-leadership as well as well as team leadership. You really need to be rewarding yourself and others for having smart processes and taking smart risks, rather than only looking for the lessons that come about whether you succeed or you fail. And so uh, you know, I spoke to Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors, the coach, because they have such a creative style of play. And he told me right away that one of the biggest mistakes is the stats that they cover really look at who put the ball in the basket and who helped the ball get in the basket. But in reality, what makes a team great are all these invisible factors that keep team cohesion going, that keep the ball moving around the court, things that are harder to measure. But once he started getting his guys measuring those intangibles, they really changed their behavior, were willing to take more risks, and created more psychological safety essentially so that they could get out there and play a better game and that's why they've been so successful. So I think, you know, what we measure, we can't just measure if we we succeeded or failed. That so often has to do with luck and timing, but we can measure, you know, did we push ourselves to the edge of our comfort zone? Did we measure our, um, you know, against reality? What was happening? Did we learn from this experience? And that makes us better failures essentially.
0: Do you think that concept of uh, you know, taking risks and, and, and discovering and, and being vulnerable is something that can be taught, or is it something that you role model, seeing other people doing it well?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly the power of role models is enormous, and as a leader, you can uh, do it well for people, and that will help them see themselves in that, but there's still a question, you know, how do you start doing it to begin with um, if you don't have that, and how do you model that as a leader? Some of my research that I found to be really fascinating was I went into this with an assumption that there are innovators who just love risk and who don't yeah. fear failure and, you know, don't don't even know the word anxiety. And, uh, you know, I was influenced by that old uh, Apple Think Different ad about, you know, the innovators are the ones yeah. who the rules because they don't know any other way. Um, And I found that that was really a myth, that it is inevitable in the process of creativity and creation that we're gonna feel anxiety. That is part of how we face change, that's how we're programmed by evolution to look at change. Uh, We all feel anxiety. The people who are able to deal best with it are not those who find ways to avoid it or not to feel it. In fact, the more we try not to feel negative emotions, the more of them we're going to have. But those who look at that anxiety as fuel for creativity, they say nothing I've ever done that was of any value creatively ever happened without some fear. And this team that I'm on, we've never done anything innovative without pushing to that edge where we're feeling afraid. And ideas that don't make us feel afraid are probably safe. So I'm not saying that you always want to go to that idea that's scaring you. You can't overload yourself with risk. But if you're always choosing the safe path and not reframing fear as fuel for creativity, um, you're going to find yourself constantly trying to navigate away from those anxious feelings and toward safety, which, you know, as I said, is actually a dangerous path these days.
0: Jonah, you're such a consummate storyteller. It's part of what makes you incredible, and it's part of your brand. And your book is woven together with some incredibly powerful stories. Do you have a favorite from the book?
1: Yeah, I. you know, what I did when I wrote this book was I started in a personal crisis, which was I ran an advertising agency that from the time I was 23, and we were all this this gut instinct, fun, creativity-focused and social change-focused ad agency, trying all kinds of new things, and we were disruptors when the internet was first kind of coming out. Uh, then, as I became more and more of an expert, I found that uh, I had to replicate myself. I had to replicate my processes. I had to enforce rules in my growing company, and that started to kill our creativity. I was in that safe thinking mode where I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I, how do I keep this thing going when I knew that the world was changing? I had to change with it. I didn't know how to do that so I started reading all the science about creativity and performance and I found that that was great and helpful but it wasn't until I started going out and meeting people who had bounced back from failure who had changed themselves who had changed their organizations and ripped them apart and built new ones that I could really grasp it you know that's the power of stories so I met over a hundred innovators and you know love the people that I talked to I guess one of my favorites Um, was Julie Wainwright. You probably don't know her, but you might know her as the biggest flop in internet history. She was the CEO of pets.com during the dot-com meltdown. And on the same day that she had to go close her offices, she woke up with the press camped out on her lawn because, you know, this was going to be the poster child for dot-com excess. And her husband announced that he was going to leave her. And so she had this enormous setback. And um, when I met her, however, she wasn't, you know, crying in her bedroom. She was the CEO of a, a billion dollar online consignment store uh, called The Real Real. And she told me basically how dangerous it is to try to, to overlearn these lessons of our past, what, what we were talking about before, that out of even the most epic and tragic failures, we can take enormous lessons and build off of them and not see patterns where patterns don't exist. You know, she would in many ways was a, you know, a victim of some naivete, but also her own naivete, but also a victim of circumstance and timing. And she still had to re- coach herself to believe that she had those skills and could grow from them. Um, so she talked a lot to me about how you can get to those lowest lows, be seasoned by them, and then be actually more powerful to build the next thing. And it's one of my favorite stories because, you know, as I went through lows in my own effort to change, just hearing about that um, makes us more forgiving of ourselves and, and open to the possibilities even when we fail.
0: I'm really grateful that you used the word forgiveness. You know, I think we are so hard on ourselves. And it's it's true. We need to give ourselves some space uh, to say, look, it's OK. You can start again. And yeah. failing is, is not a disaster. It's a moment on the journey. So thank you for saying that. You know, interacting with all these incredible individuals whom you showcase in the book, has that increased your capacity to be an unsafe thinker? Has it stretched you even more? Uh,
1: You know, it has. As I said, I think I'm kind of a naturally, uh, well, I'm probably like everybody else, you know, I'll get into a zone of high creativity and excitement and trying something new. And when I see that it works, I feel myself attaching to sticking with it, you know, and breaking those habits to be very, very hard. And, um, you know, the tried and true when it's working, uh, you need to be investing a certain amount of time in sort of what's next. But when things are working and and firing in all cylinders, you sort of that energy starts to flag. So, yeah, you know, I, I have found that by having these stories in my back pocket, and essentially asking myself uh, from time to time, pretty much daily, what would an unsafe thinker do in this circumstance? I get a, a new idea, maybe that um, I don't take, not every time, but moving away from automatic thinking and behavior simply by asking myself that question has been enormously helpful. And there's a lot of psychological science that shows that asking that question, you know, making a role model for yourself and saying, what would this role model do Um, is a very powerful way of guiding our behavior and motivation. So, so I try to do that every day and take a little bit more risk. It hasn't turned me into a uh, crazy rebel vandal (laughs) doing anything and jumping off cliffs, but it certainly has shown it has exposed my automatic thinking and uh, opened up enough space to at least see my automatic thinking for what it is, and then decide if I want to engage in it or engage in something else.
0: Well done. You changed that muscle memory. So tell me about the audience for this book. To me, it seems multi-generational. You know, so many people would benefit from this, but for whom did you write the book?
1: Well, you know, as I as I intimated, I kind of wrote it for myself at first. You know, I, yeah. I had to break myself out of this spell um and so it has a, a bit of a business and career angle to it. It's yeah. not a um it's not a relationship book or a parenting book. But I think that this idea of challenging our own thinking Um, is right up the middle and people who are trying to build careers, trying to get to get past that one level of success to that next level. When you feel like, you know, you've gotten somewhere in your career, maybe you're not just setting out, but you've gotten somewhere, you know, you can achieve more. How do I do it? The same goes for growing a company. So, you know, that that's kind of my core audience, the the entrepreneur, uh, the person in mid career really looking to take that next leap. Um, But You know, I've definitely gotten a lot of feedback uh, that this is great for teachers. This is really helpful for parents thinking about how they teach their kids. Um, And so, you know, they they, they definitely warn you, don't write your book for everybody because you'll sell it to nobody. But, um, you know, I I, I find the applications for this kind of thinking are are pretty broad.
0: Excellent. So, Jonah, what are some tips – for someone who's listening, you know, we've got a global audience over a million strong. And I'm sure there are people listening today that are saying, okay, I'm in, how do I start? What's the baby step that I can take today to maybe try unsafe thinking?
1: Yeah, well, as I said, for the, you know, the first step, I think is really building that courage to take first steps. And so um, this this work to start reframing anxiety, to notice your fear response, to recognize that we're programmed in that fear response to seek safety, um, which is just a natural, because when, you know, when a lion jumps out at you on the Savannah, the best thing to do is not to sit down and brainstorm a bunch of new and exciting <laughs> options. The best thing to do is to run, right? right. So we are programmed under, under periods of high stress To uh, react with stereotypical ideas so to notice that we're in a period of high stress to reframe that as an opportunity to come up with new ideas and then to use some of the tools um, that I've discovered to take those next steps so um, one is cognitively diverse groups of people tend to outperform um, cognitively similar groups of people uh, on all creative tasks. So bringing in people who are your detractors, your critics, those people you never think you'd want to spend time with is enormously powerful. Uh, I spoke to a a preacher in in Boston who was trying to bring down murder rates in his neighborhood, uh, and he kept trying to work with the at-risk youth. The at-risk youth, you know, didn't have any solutions for the problem. They were just scared. It wasn't until he started working with the murderers and and gang members that he actually was able to bring murders down in his neighborhood 60 percent. And so sometimes it's like getting out there and Talking to the people who you think oppose you can really break some of that cycle. Um, I talk a lot about as well, you know, how we form our teams. A lot of times you want to take take something as a leader, take a step is leaders need to speak last in meetings. Mm. There's something called shared information bias where when teams are trying to get along as much as they possibly can, which teams naturally try to do. There's a tendency that everybody to repeat the same information and to forget any new information that they have. So if you're with a group of people and you're jumping right to an idea and you're the one who always speaks, try you know, stepping back and listening. And if you're the person who's always hiding your special information because you think you're going to be judged, judged for having outlying information, just recognize that um, people who speak up uh, and defy the group are often judged as more loyal for having shared that information. So there's a lot of inform- a lot of cool ideas about that. And then finally, um, to recognize that creativity means rule breaking, that rules are really helpful for holding our lives and our organizations together. But, um, we too often think of, uh, enforcing and breaking, enforcing rules as good and breaking rules as bad. If you're a leader of an organization, you can reduce and minimize the number of rules and tell the stories of people who are the smart people in their organizations who are doing the workarounds that are so much smarter than the rules allow for. And if you're in an organization and you're a rule breaker, um, recognize a lot of the science shows that if you talk about your innovations around rule-breaking and expose them, um, you're more likely to be valued as an employee. So, uh, you know, don't always hide in the shadows when you've found clever workarounds to the rules. Recognize that rule-breaking is part of creativity. So lots of ways to dip your toes in. Um, And, you know, I, 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 in the book, really work on letting people recognize in themselves that you're probably doing some of these things already, but the parts of your brain that you're not used to doing, that's where the goal really lies. And so exercising those parts of your brain that you've moved away from um, are often really powerful ways of moving forward.
0: So, Joni, you talk in the book so beautifully about how individuals and certainly leaders and companies should embrace anxiety and risk. So might you be able to give an example of, of an individual or even an organization that did that and, and found great success or innovation or, or new results because of that reframe?
1: Yeah, I tell the story in the book of um, a woman named Helena folks at CVS, who was a vice president of the organization uh, and was tasked with, I think, kind of a boring job in a way which was helping define the corporate purpose, which very often leads to sort of, you know, a nice statement for the press. And they came up with this corporate purpose of, um, you know, delivering health and wellness to communities. And that didn't get anybody too excited because that was kind of obvious. But... What was also obvious when they wrote that down was that um, there was a lot of hypocrisy in the organization because they were selling two billion dollars worth of tobacco products a year. Right. And um, that created a, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, discomfort in the organization. And the easiest thing to do is just to accept like this is just part of the compromises we make as businesses. Two billion dollars. You'll never take it off the books. But Helena Fuchs herself was a cancer survivor and someone who was moving up in the organization, um, who realized that, you know, it was more of a risk for the for the organization and for her to, for career to say nothing than it was to try to challenge this enormous corporate culture she was part of, and she spoke to uh, the senior leadership, and I think they really challenged her to not just make a, a heart-based, you know, this is wrong approach, but to really challenge her to think about. How can we make this a smart business decision and in knowing that she needed to appeal to both the head and the heart and move in that direction of those fears of challenging the the consensus she found an amazing opportunity in which CVS could make more money by not selling tobacco and she built a model for it and um, you know new partnerships and, and new ability to, to, to build brand value and in the first year they actually uh, made 11 billion dollars more than the revenue they lost and so that's just an example of where you know we see something it makes us uncomfortable we know sticking our neck out could be dangerous you know folks became the president of CVS after that um, and so moving towards those things where we'd you know, kind of rather not go. That was a brilliant example, not just on, on this innovators part, but on the whole organization, learning how to benefit from someone's willingness to take risks. And, I, you know, there's just so many. Uh, I'll, I'll tell one more quick one, please. Um, you know, I, I looked at the story of Mahatma Gandhi, not a business guy, but, you know, an inspiration nonetheless. Uh, he was probably the biggest, boldest innovator of the 20th century, brought down the British Empire with his nonviolent approaches. And Gandhi was someone who I just assumed, you know, was fearless. Well, when I read more about him, it turned out that as a young man, he was afraid to even be seen in public in a social situation. He was the head of the London Vegetarian Society. He couldn't give speeches. He had to resign because he couldn't give a speech even on a stage like that. He was a lawyer in India and in a $10 small claims court case, he couldn't utter a word as the, as the attorney. So he had a flea, uh, in shame. You know, the court was laughing at him because he couldn't speak. He had a flea in shame to South Africa. And he calls the most creative incident in his, in his life, something that happened in South Africa cause he kept moving away from that, which scared him. But he was on a train crossing a mountain across South Africa, freezing outside and he's sitting in a seat that's reserved for a white man. And they kick him off the train because he doesn't belong there and they don't give him his bag. So he's sleeping. He's frozen on the platform. He's shivering on the platform. And he realizes in that moment that every time he's run from his fears, his life has gotten smaller and his fears have gotten stronger. And so he promises himself then that he's going to move towards those things that most scare him. Now, I'm not saying that that was the only secret to his success. But again, he calls that the most creative incident in his life. And pretty soon after that, within months, he's starting to lead freedom marches in South Africa. And he's confronting uh, some of the powers there, which was all the practice he got to go back to India and make the changes he did. So if you ever look at someone and say, wow, that person just embodies risk taking and bravery and courage. How can I ever be like that? I think it's great to just picture, you know, someone like Gandhi standing up in front of 10 people in a room and not being able to open his mouth. And Gandhi said that he never lost that fear of speaking to people in all of his life. So, um, you know, that just gives me hope whenever I'm feeling a little social anxiety to know I'm in good company.
0: Absolutely. Jonah Sachs, you are a treasure. Thank you so much. Your new book is extraordinary. It's called Unsafe Thinking. How to be nimble and bold when you need it most. And of course it's available at all book retailers and online as well. Jonah, thank you for spending time with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for the great questions.
0: Take good care, Jonah. And hey, if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and even better, leave us a review and let us know what career development themes you'd like for us to address on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins, and I want to give a shout-out to my extraordinary podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, our Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, our Executive Producer. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins.